If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 1 through verse 14. Of course, this is a familiar passage of Scripture, most likely for each one of you. This is where Elijah has just had, man, one of the greatest miracles, greatest victories. Uh, man, I believe in the Word of God. I know that salvation is, is the greatest miracle of all. We see the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord. There's so many miracles in the Word of God, but this is one that, man, I'm telling you, is just so awesome. Uh, right when he is going and uh, he has just went through the experience of Mount Carmel, uh, where he goes and you see all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asher and everything else and Elijah's there by himself but we know that you and God is a majority, amen? And he's sitting up there outnumbered in every way possible and all the enemies of God are taunting him and talking ill about the Lord and all this stuff like that. And of course you remember they have this showdown where the one who has the God who answers by fire uh, proclaims that that is the one and only God. And if you remember that, uh, prophets of Baal and Asher begin to cry out and do all this stuff, and they're doing all these ritualistic stuff, and nothing happens, right? Because there is only one God, the God of the Bible, the God of creation. And I love the part where Elijah looks at him and says, well, you know, cry a little harder because maybe he's just falling asleep for a little while. And he kind of just kind of antagonizes him a little bit. But then this passage, well, let me back up and finish the story just in case you need reminding. Remember, when Elijah, though, takes and has them pour water all over the offering, he has them build trenches and fills that with water, if you remember, and then he cries out, and what happens? The Lord consumes the offering, he answers and consumes the offering, and performs a great miracle, and then all the enemies of God are slain and laid out, defeated, and then we pick up in chapter 19, and this is kind of where I relate to most of the time. Now listen, I've experienced miracles of God. I've experienced God answering prayers and blessings like crazy. But often I live in chapter 19, where we find Elijah running for his life, the fire of God kind of burning out, if you will, and him living a defeated life emotionally, spiritually. And so I want us to look at this tonight, or this morning. It's not night yet, is it? Okay. I want us to look at that this morning and see how you and I can keep the fire of God burning. How we can continue to live in the Mount Carmel experience rather than the running and fleeing experience. Amen? So 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, referring to Mount Carmel and all that experience, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now just a little bit of side sermonette, I probably won't mention this again, but in case I don't, I want you to see it. Is it not so clear when you and I allow the enemy to just overwhelm us, to cause us to live in fear, that we are so unstable emotionally, so unstable with everything about ourselves, he's running for his life, but in the same time he's saying, take my life. Is that not just how crazy our lives are when we allow the enemy to intimidate us? And I won't go any further because I get ahead of myself and begin to preach my message before I ever get through the passage. Amen? 
Now, verse 5, he says, He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was in his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel, forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away also. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountains before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rendering the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you so much for being able to come today, Lord, and to worship you and to be able to sing praises to you, to be able to gather together, Lord. We count this as a blessing, a privilege, and God, we know it's a great responsibility to do just what we're doing right now, gathering as one body, God, together, worshiping you. Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you for those that are obedient to be here today. Pray for those that couldn't, Lord. And God, now we ask that you would just put a blessing on your word, that you'd speak to our hearts, open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to receive it. And Lord God, we once again rebuke the devil, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, and demand that he be gone and every other spirit be gone other than the Holy Spirit of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, to answer the question, how can we keep the fire burning? How can we continue to live where Elijah was when he was calling out to God and God answered and just poured out fire from heaven and consumed the offering and gave him an unbelievable great revival and great... Uh, just victory and all that he had saw on Mount Carmel. How can we continue to live there rather than living where we see Elijah running in fear, unstable, and all the things we read in chapter 19? How can we continue to live on fire for the Lord? Well, number one, don't allow Satan to intimidate you. Don't allow Satan to intimidate you. I want us to see this today, and I know we recognize this, but Satan wants you to fear him more than you fear God reverently. reverently. Amen? Satan wants us to live in fear, live in darkness, live in that moment where we're just consumed by fear. I don't know about you, but you've probably heard me mention this briefly just through the times I've been able to preach with you guys and be able to worship with y'all, but fear, anxiety, and those things of that nature have been a constant attack in my life. And I know most of you can relate to that because you've been there before where Satan will try to just consume you with fear and cause you to just live in this state of darkness and everything else. Grant, you get over and sit down now. I knew that was going to happen. Get over and sit down right now. 
And so, man, Satan does that, doesn't he? There's something the Lord spoke to me here a while back. You know, we live in a day and age now, and I'm, I'm not knocking medication. Let me throw this disclaimer out there. I'm not knocking medication. I'm not saying that God doesn't use medication, and I'm not saying that you don't need medication today. You need to pray about that and recognize whether you do or not. But I'm telling you this today. We need to make it to the place where we live our lives in such a way that you and I are not medicated on uh, medication that's for fear and anxiety and everything else, we need to make it to the point where Satan's had to be medicated, amen? We need to live in that way, amen? And so we don't need to let Satan intimidate us. And so I want to answer the question today, how does Satan typically or seek to intimidate us? Well, how does he do that? Well, number one, he often uses other people, doesn't he? Notice verse two. It says, then Jezebel sent a messenger. Well, this messenger was a person. Jezebel was a person who existed. And the enemy, the devil himself, I believe, used Jezebel and used this messenger as they brought the message to Elijah to cause him to fear. And I know the same is true for us. Often in our lives... Satan plants people in our lives. Just as God plants people in our lives to encourage us, to build us up, to lead us, to teach us, Satan plants people in our lives. You say, well, I just don't believe that. Well, remember what Jesus said? He spoke about an enemy who came at night and sowed what? Tares among the wheat. The wheat represented the people of God. The tares represented the people of who? The devil. And so I'm telling you today, that Satan will use people in your life to intimidate you, to cause you to run from the Lord's will, to cause you to live in fear and to be unstable. He will use people and he will plant them in your life. But not only does he use people to intimidate us, he uses words of persuasiveness is what I want to say today. He uses words of persuasiveness. Notice verse 2 again. It says that, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Notice what happens though. Saying, and here comes those words of persuasiveness. So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So Elijah, as I can picture it, is celebrating. They've had this great miracle He's been on a roller coaster ride. I promise you, as he's sitting there, outnumbered by the prophets of Baal and Asher and everyone else, he's overwhelmed, but he's walking by faith. He's praying. He's watching them. He gets a little bit of Holy Spirit boldness. He begins to taunt them and say, Hey, your God's not answering. Maybe he's asleep. Holler louder. Do this, do that. And then he steps into the victory circle. He calls down fire from heaven. He sees all the enemies of God slain. He's picturing that, and he's beginning to celebrate. But I know his. You and I all, always know there's this little doubt that comes. There's this little voice that comes. Often it's loud. Sometimes it's silently coming out there. And man, he is sitting there seeing, picturing in his mind all the victory. And I don't want to get too gory here, but the blood that is just laid all over the ground with all these enemies of God. And here comes the enemy and a person. And now with the words of persuasiveness saying, listen. By this time tomorrow, I consider myself dead if you're not like one of them, is what Jezebel said. These words of persuasiveness. Do you agree today that Satan has a way with words, doesn't he? He knows exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it. And, and by the way, as we talk about people, I just said that he uses people. We see this as Jezebel sending a message through someone. Man, 
he, he knows how to get someone to say the exact thing you don't need to hear, doesn't he? Isn't it crazy? You can wake up in the morning, have something you're dealing with, and no one else know about it. And a coworker, a spouse, someone unknowingly just say something, and it'd be exactly the word you didn't need to hear. Am I right? Satan uses words of persuasiveness. Listen, I love what the psalmist says. This is Psalms 55 and verse 1 through verse 3. This is, of course, David, and uh, this is when he is going through a difficult time and, and, and things are going on. And listen to what he says here, how he describes it. This is Psalms 55, verse 1 through verse 3. He says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplications. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted. Kind of similar to where Elijah's it. Lots of fear and distractions and, and just restlessness. But notice what he says in verse 3. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me and anger, they bear a grudge against me. But he says, I am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy. And I'm telling you, Satan wants to continue to scream in your ear words of persuasiveness to intimidate you, to keep you from being who God's called you to be, to keep you from experiencing the awesomeness of God and His call on your life. Amen? So don't let Satan intimidate you. He uses other people. He uses words of persuasiveness. But last of all, he also uses your life often to intimidate you, doesn't he? Your life. Notice verse 3. It says, And he was afraid and rose and ran for his life. Elijah did not want to lose his life. Somewhere or another, he supernaturally forgot about his life on Mount Carmel, was not worried about his life. God gave him this great victory. And then after the Holy Spirit movement is over, he comes off the mountaintop, if you will, and then all of a sudden, this person, Jezebel, sends a messenger, sends this word, sends this threat, and now Elijah is scared for his life. Now listen, before I go any farther on this point, is it okay to, to care about your life? Yeah, you better believe it. In fact, we are to take care of our bodies. We're not to be suicidal, praise God. We're not to jump out in front of a freight chain and just, you know, well, be like, oh, well, what's it matter? God's going to take care of me. We know that. We see that through the temptation that Jesus went through in the wilderness. We know that we're not to test the Lord. We know to take care of ourselves. But we're not to live in fear constantly of death, are we? And worrying about our lives. Listen, what Jesus says, this is Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 25. The scripture says this. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now here's the part I want us to see. <coughs> Excuse me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But listen, man, we're to value our lives, but we're not to live in fear constantly of losing our life. Amen? We're to walk forward recognizing that God is in control and not listen to the voice of the devil and living in constant fear. Am I going to live or am I going to die? And I know today, you and I, man, we've never seen this more clearer than we see right now, do we? As we are in constant 
just bombardment of fear-mongering and everything else about this terrible disease and this terrible, terrible virus that we know is real. And, and most likely all of us have had someone probably die that we feel like died younger than they should have or died earlier as a result of this sickness. But man, hasn't Satan tried to use that to keep us in fear over our own lives? Do we need to be smart? Yes. Do we need to protect ourselves? Yes. Do we need to, you know, uh, take care of our bodies and everything else? Yes. Eat, try to eat right and everything else. I don't want to go there, right? We'll all be in trouble before it's over with. I know I don't do that, but man, we do need to take care of ourselves, but not fear and total death. And so, man, we need to recognize all this and see that this is backwards. We see Elijah running, and it's supposed to be the other way around, isn't it? James chapter 4, verse 7 tells us this. It says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is backwards. We're not supposed to be running from the devil. He's supposed to be fleeing from us because we have submitted to God and we've resisted him. Amen? So don't let Satan intimidate you. Second of all, if we're going to stay on fire for the Lord, we don't need to allow Satan to cause us to doubt. We don't need to let him intimidate us, but we also need to make certain we don't let him cause us to doubt. And there's several things this morning, four of them that I want to mention that I see in this passage that Satan was causing Elijah to doubt, I believe, that he also causes you and I to doubt often in our lives and our walk with the Lord. Number one, often Satan will try to cause you to doubt self-worth. Self-worth. Satan wants you to believe today that you're worthless, that you're not valuable, that you're not loved, that you're not like anybody else, that you're the lowest one, that you're scum, and all that garbage that he tells you. He wants you to doubt your self-worth. But I'm telling you today that you need to recognize that you are loved greatly. Amen? That you are special. That you are the apple of God's eye. That you are his prized creation. Listen to this passage right here. We see in verse 4 where we see that he begins to even doubt his self-worth. We see... In verse 4, he begins to just kind of bring that out. He says, but it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, Listen to what he says right here. It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. What is he saying? <coughs> He's saying, I believe the lie that I am not worth as much as my father. I'm not as valuable as enough as my father. God, take my life. Take my life because I'm not as valuable as my father. I'm not better than my father. I believe there was an attack on his self-worth, on his, uh, who he was in the Lord. We need to make certain we don't let Satan cause us to doubt that. But also, I'll tell you another way that Satan calls, or thing that Satan calls us is a doubt, and that's God's provision in our lives. God's provision. Today, again, we live in a place and age where things are happening so rapidly and so crazily. Some of y'all, maybe during the shutdowns or even after you got layoff, man, I'm just telling you, here, January 1st, we found out, my wife and I, about 13 years ago, got involved in a, a company. It became very, very awesome for us financially. January 1st, they shut down, just like that. Just like that. Finances, and listen, God's taking care of me. I'm not saying that to try to get sympathy or anything else. I'm just telling you, we live in a world right now that's unstable. The, the whole testimony of that deal is this. We came this close to just going out in evangelism and not me, me not going by vocational for work and resting on that business 
And I thank God I listened to him and didn't do that, amen? Because he knew COVID was coming. He knew that was going to happen. But we live in a time where, man, God's provision, we often question it. I got a text the other day from a family member. Said, hey, have you went and bought some bottled water? Have you bought this and that? The truckers are going to be, they're going to be protesting March the 1st. And I thought to myself, this person is scared to death. And listen, I'm not saying I'm not going to buy a case of waters if they go on strike, but listen, man, we're not seeing uh, people buy a bunch of toilet paper too, right? Man, I'm thinking, man, if I know there's not going to be anything on the shelf, I'm going to get something besides water. I'm going to go buy me some meat or something too, amen? But listen, that does, it speaks to us, doesn't it, of how we are in fear and of God's provision. Are we going to be able to pay our bills? Are we going to be able to feed our family? Are, are we going to have what we need? Well, man, in this passage right here, more than once, we see where an angel of the Lord takes and feeds him. Is that not amazing? And then is it Elisha? Somebody help me, my Bible scholars. This is Elijah, but was it Elisha or Elijah where a bird comes and takes meat to him as he's by the brook Cherith? Is that, is that what it's called? Remember that passage? God's going to take care of us. God is going to provide for us. Uh, let me read this verse 5 verse in, in 1 Kings first. It says, He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Was there a McDonald's nearby? No. Was there a Cracker Barrel? No. -uh. It was God himself feeding him. Amen? And then we see it again later on in the passage. And down in verse 7, at the end of verse 7, Rise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. And it says that he went 40 days and 40 nights on that food. That was some awesome energy bars. Amen? It was some good stuff. But listen, this is one of the familiar passages of the psalmist in Psalms 37, verse 25. He says, As I've been young and now I am old, yes, I, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. God will provide for us. We don't have to doubt his provision. From food to finances to strength to whatever we need, the Bible has promised us, Philippians 4.19, that he will supply all our needs not according to our bank account, not according to our circumstances, not according to this country and the foolish, demonic people that are in control of it right now and their ability to do anything to provide for us, but in God and His riches in Christ Jesus. Amen? It's, he's not dependent upon anybody else. He's going to take care of His children. Amen? Every last one of us today, if you've got children of your own, you know how you love them, how you want to take care of them. You know how you want to, to provide for them. And that don't even scratch the surface how bad God wants to provide for us. Amen? He loves us tremendously. So he calls us to doubt often our self-worth, often God's provision, often God's power. Man, Elijah just experienced, as I've said more than once, this awesome move of God, the Mount Carmel experience as we call it. And now he's doubting that God can protect him from Jezebel. A woman, no offense ladies, but man, Elijah had been most likely against some awesome warriors. Those prophets of Baal were probably not wimps. And yet now he's doubting God's power. One of my favorite passages is a quote, but it's hard to live sometimes. It's 1 John chapter 4 verse 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. What does that say? Man, listen. The devil is never, ever more powerful than the Lord. 
So therefore, if you are a born-again believer and you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, greater is He that is in you than He is in this world. So we need to recognize that. And then Matthew 28, remember what Jesus said? He said, all power and authority has been given unto me. And guess what? The Bible teaches me that me and Jesus are what? Not good buddies. Not just acquaintances. Not just meeting up every once in a while. But we are what? One. So if all power and authority has been given to Jesus, then I have all that power and authority if I stay submitted unto Him, walking hand in hand with Him. Amen? So we don't have to doubt God's power. And then also, one more thing I want to mention that Satan often causes us or tries to cause us to doubt, and that's God's love. God's love. Man, today, we don't ever need to doubt God's love. I know our circumstances are tough right now. I know there's difficulties all around us. I know there's hard things taking place. And Satan often will come with those words of persuasiveness that I mentioned earlier. And he'll say, God don't love you, look at this. God don't care about you, look at that. Man, even here recent for me, my, my son right here, man, he, he has been in the last two or three months to a doctor, after the same doctor, but constantly with this cough, this old nagging cough, nagging cough. And I'm like, God, what, man, why don't it leave? And of course, went through the whole COVID thing around the 1st of January, and we're pretty sure he had it too. And, and so just this cough, this cough. And I'm like, God, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. Why don't it leave? Why don't it just leave? And thank God... We got to allergy specialist, and he said he had mild asthma, and God took care of it. But in that process, I was like, God, don't you love me like so-and-so? Their kids are okay, and my kids have been blessed. I've got to admit that. But, man, in those moments, though, when things are going on, don't we often doubt? Like, God, don't you love me? We should never doubt God's love, right? Man, we should remember one of the most quoted passages of scriptures other than Psalms 23 probably is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Man, we need to be reminded every day God loves us. Don't doubt it. He gave his only son. And you've heard me quote this, I know, Romans 5.8. He demonstrates his love yet towards us yet while we were sinners, he died for us. Man, he, he took the punishment. He took the suffering. So don't let Satan cause you to doubt your self-worth, God's provision, God's power, and especially God's love. Third of all this morning, don't allow Satan to draw you away from God's will. Don't allow Satan to draw you away from God's will. We know that God's will was not for Elijah to be running. I mentioned earlier, God's will is for the devil to run from us because Jesus is in control of our life. But listen verse 9 and verse 13. It says, Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then as you go on to verse 13, verse 13 says, When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, I believe, without a doubt, that the Lord is going to Elijah and he says it twice. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? In other words, why are you not where you're supposed to be? Why are you not in the center of my will? 
Now thank God that God was there and God was trying to restore him and God did restore him. And thank God that he cares enough about us that when we do run, try to run from him or get off the path or whatever, that God still loves us and God still cares, but he still confronts us with this question. What are you doing there? Maybe this morning, some of you right now, God is saying that to you spiritually. What are you doing there? Some of us right now are possibly in spiritual ruts from fear and doubts and anxiety or just sin, plain old sin, which fear and anxiety is, amen? And we're just living in sin and living in a spiritual rut and God is saying to us this morning, what are you doing there? So don't let Satan draw you out of God's will. You want to stay on fire for God? Stay in the center of His will. Stay right where He wants you, amen? You want to be miserable? You want to be undone, unstable, defeated? Then get out of God's will. That's the fastest way, folks. Many of us know that. Many of us have experienced that, haven't we? If you want to stay on fire for the Lord, don't get out of God's will. Don't leave God's will. And then last of all this morning, if we're going to stay on fire for the Lord, don't neglect your relationship with God. And I know this is elementary, but we need to be reminded of this constantly, day after day, don't we? Don't neglect your relationship with God. And we know we need to pray more. We need to be in God's Word more. But we need to act upon the communicating with God and the Word of God. But listen again. I'll go back to verse 9 again. And I'll read. It says, Then it came there. he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now I want us to kind of focus on where that was, where he's at. We go to verse 14. It says, of course, we know this whole experience where he's, he's seeing the earthquakes, he's seeing the fire, he's seeing all these different things. And now we see in verse 14, it says, Then he said to him, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel, forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone left and they seek my life to take it away. And so we know that he, if you go back to verse uh, 8, you'll see it tells us that he went 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now Horeb, the mountain of God, is a starting point for Elijah. It's a starting point where he's going back to where he, his starting point with God, if you will. And in fact, Horeb, is also Mount Sinai where we know that that is where God first appeared to Moses, right? And then as I studied and read a lot of different commentaries, a lot of folks believe that exactly where Elijah was was most likely where God put Moses in the cleft of the rock as he allowed his glory to pass him by. And so this is a special place. I'm not condoning Elijah running from the Lord but one thing we can learn from him in this process is he went to a starting point. He went somewhere that was special, a starting point in his relationship with God, something that was really special when it came to spirituality. Amen? And so today I ask you this question. Do you have a starting point? Do you have somewhere where you can go back, where you know that you know where you started with the Lord? For me, I've shared this before. I know that I can go right down the road not very far from here in that little parsonage to the right of Providence Baptist Church off Point Wilhout Road right there in the curve, right there by the grocery store, or little convenience store. It used to be Nolan's Grocery. I can go right there to that parsonage and I can tell you where I was sitting, where I was standing, 
where my pastor took me out of that parsonage into the building next door of the church and we sat down in his office and I can tell you where I was sitting when the Holy Spirit of God dealt with me when he shared the gospel with me and I was born again right there and I, that, my starting point started right there. I can take you right there to that spot and it's special to me. It's special. A lot of People pass by it every day, probably don't even notice there's a church there, people that don't live there, but it's a special place for me because I can go back there and I know that's where it started. It began for me. My walk with the Lord. I ask you the question, do you have that? I believe that's why Elijah went to Mount Horeb. I believe that's why he was there. Do you have a starting point? If not, then today you can. Today you can have a starting point. You can today enter in a relationship with Jesus. Very simple. Just simply by asking in faith, you can receive him today as your Lord and your Savior and begin to be his child. Maybe some of you today are like me and Man, you know you've got a starting point. You know that you're a child of God. You know you've been saved. But man, it's just been one thing after another. One spiritual rut after another. And maybe today you feel like, man, I'm just not where I'm supposed to be. There's not no feeling. You know you're not where you're supposed to be spiritually. You might would even say what I've been saying often in the last little while of my life is it's been so chaotic. I've been, I've been thinking, man, this is the furthest I've ever been from the Lord or this is the coldest I've ever been for the Lord or this is the, the less on fire I've ever been for Him and I constantly am processing that. And you know the beauty of all that today is if we're willing to just confess that, if you know you're a child of God, you know you got that starting point where you were truly born again, you know what, man, if you're just willing to just repent and ask God to cleanse you today, He'll do that and restore you beautifully. Amen? How many examples do we see that in the Word of God? From Elijah to Elisha to Peter. Man, on the, the banks of the, the water there as he's eating fish with Jesus and Jesus beautifully restores him, remember? After Jesus was resurrected. Man, all these beautiful stories we see, God always pours out mercy and grace on those who repent, doesn't He?